Hey guys, great to great to be with you. Is this working? You guys hear, hear the sound? Yeah. Working? Okay, great. I'm excited to be here. Excited to be with you. Yeah, like David said, uh, I'm a I'm a pastor. My my heart is for the local church. I've given my life to the local church because I believe it's in the local church that's that's God's plan A for the world, and that's where God is making Himself known and transforming lives for eternity. So I've lived here in the Bay Area since January 2002. I grew up in Sacramento two hours away, and then college down in Santa Barbara. I lived there for a year and a half or so after college and moved up here in 2002. I was a youth pastor in the South Bay for four years or so, then moved up the peninsula, lived in San Carlos, worked in Foster City as an associate pastor, and then started our church, Garden City Church, uh, almost seven years ago. We'll turn seven this September. Uh, planted the church with three people, $3,000, and this big dream of what God could do to engage the South Bay with the gospel in a fresh new way. And we're just really thankful for what God's been doing in in and through our church. And a lot of what I'm going to be teaching on is just stuff I've learned. It came out of mistakes I made uh, and good decisions I made in, in, in the church and what we've been learning about disciple making there. So I'm married to my wife, Taylor. We just celebrated 15 years of marriage. Uh, very, I'm very into my wife. She's amazing. She's special. Um, and then I've got three sons, three boys that are 11, 9, and 7. So my oldest just started middle school this last week. He's got the locker now, and he's excited about that and switching classes, and and, it, and it's fun. So uh, that's a little bit about me, 39 years old. My 40th birthday is coming up. We're, we're getting that planned. My wife's got something cool planned. I'm excited about that. Um, this is the overview of today, what we're going to do. Session one, we're going to use session one. It's going to be a two-session deal. Session one, we're going to kind of demystify uh, and define discipleship. And I want to give you some very practical handles and sort of a process for making disciples. Uh, then, then we'll have a break. During that break and during the whole time I'm here, feel free to grab me, talk to me about anything you want to talk about. And then we're going to have a session two where we're going to look at a, a tool for, for deepening discipleship, and we're going to have Q&A. And I want you guys to ask any, any questions that, that you have, uh, and we'll probably talk about some resources and all that. And, yeah, like David said, there's some books in the back that I wrote if you're interested, uh, 10 bucks, check or cash or whatever. I don't have, like, a credit card thing. Um, and there's there's a book back there called The Big Story that is a book I wrote for helping you to understand how only the Bible gives us a story that's big enough to make sense out of both the beauty and the brokenness in our world. It's a book that we give to every newcomer that comes in the door of our church. It's a great book for believers and a great book for non-believers to begin to get the, the biblical story. Date Your Wife, a book on, on, on marriage um, and a book on cities, uh, reaching cities with the gospel. Um, so session one, and I need you guys to interact with me on this a little bit. Let's start just with this question. Why Why are you here today? Uh, I'd like to hear an answer to this. Why are you here today? Faith. David. So, David? Oh, Dave. Oh. <laughs> oh, you're here because of David. Got it. Yes. You're here because of David, because David said you got to be here. Great. Good. You can trust your leadership. You can trust David. Okay, we hear the word discipleship a lot, but we don't always know what it looks like. It's this big word. What does this mean? So here to here to learn more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Practical churches having a workshop. I'm gonna come. I'm gonna I'm gonna learn. Yeah. Um, I think all great like thinking about discipleship it starts with there there being a desire there's the, there's got to be this desire this hunger to to want to learn about this and what Jesus wants to teach us about discipleship so um 
There is a problem. You hit on this in your question. There is a problem in most churches when it comes to thinking about discipleship. Um, most people, most Christians, tend to think that discipleship is this big, huge thing, and I've got to figure it. They overcomplicate discipleship. We don't have clarity about what it means to make disciples. We think, hey, I've only been a believer for three months. How could I ever make disciples? And we, we want to we want to understand that that's not that's not the case. One of my biggest failures as a church planter, as a pastor, was in, our church was almost a year old, you know, and our mission statement's all about making disciples, and I'm, I'm preaching every Sunday, and I'm hanging out with people, and I'm leading life groups in our church, and I realized, I just assumed that people knew how to make disciples. Uh, I knew how to make disciples, I've been doing it, and I just assumed everyone else knew how to do that, and it was a very wrong assumption, and so what I did is, I, I gotta, I gotta, like, create a process here, so what I did is I gathered a group of 12 men, and I said, hey, we are gonna meet, uh, there are a mix of leaders in our church, and people that are brand new to our church, and, and even some people that were just beginning to hear about the gospel, not believers yet, not saved yet, and I said, I want you guys to commit to meeting with me every Sunday evening in my backyard, and, and we're gonna forge together uh, a process for growing as disciples of Jesus and making disciples of Jesus. And it was through that process that through a series of different drafts, I, I developed a document that we're going to look at here in this in this first session. So uh, never assume that people know how to make disciples. So if you guys could grab this first handout, the, the one that's got lots of words on it, this, it says disciples and making disciples up at the top. Uh, what I want us to do is we're going to work through this in session one. Uh, take notes on this. Be thinking about your questions about this, and we'll have time for those questions uh, dur- during the Q&A. This document starts in the middle. I know this is a ton. These are a lot of words, but this is what I'm doing with this. I use this as a tool to train my church in disciple making, and I wanted to get everything that I felt was most critical on one piece of paper. Obviously, you have read uh, 300-page books on discipleship. You can spend lots of time talking about disciple making, but I wanted to create a tool that's one piece of paper that gets the most critical information here. I'm sure there's there's other things that could be here, but this is what I think is the beating heart of discipleship. So starting in the middle with this first question, who are your guys, gals? All of this is creating a culture in our church, and it's a culture you can create in your church. And with everything I'm teaching today, you guys can take it and riff on it and tweak it and nuance it so it is most applicable and most helpful to your context. But we're trying to create a culture, and we've been trying to create a culture in Garden City, and I think we've really done this, where... Um, I could, I could on a Sunday look out in our church and I could walk up to a guy named Joe and I could say, Joe, who are your guys? Or I could walk up to, to Julie and say, who are your gals? And they could give me the name of one, two, three, four, five people that they are discipling or that they are in a discipleship relationship with. And we just want that to be the norm. So it starts with that. Who are your guys? Who are your gals that you are discipling? And we want our people to think both Christian and non-Christian there. Um, when I am using the word discipleship, I'm not thinking only of making deeper disciples of people who are already disciples of Jesus. It totally includes that. But I'm also thinking people who are not yet believers. I don't see a, um, I don't make a sharp distinguishing mark between discipleship and evangelism. When Jesus says, go out into the world, make disciples, um, he's including people who, who don't yet know him. So that's where it starts with. It starts with having people that you've selected that you are discipling. Like David gave a story, uh, the guy who's who's here, right? You at the gym. Like the, was that you? Was that you? 
Someone, there's somebody here. Is that you? Yeah. Um, so that, that's where it starts. Not, Non-Christians in your life that you're praying for, that you're in a discipleship relationship, Christians, buddies here in the church that you're discipling. Um, this is how we define discipleship at my church. You see it in bold there. Discipleship is truth and love transferred through relationship. You need to have an active working definition of discipleship so we know what we're talking about. So this is discipleship in a sentence. It's truth and love transferred through relationship. Um, now, people in certain churches or traditions can tend to lean more, more one way or the other. Uh, some of you have maybe come from a context where discipleship is just all truth. It's all truth, it's all doctrine, it's all head knowledge, and it's very little love, right? Very little relationship. Or maybe you've been in context where it's all love, it's all very relational, but where is the doctrine? Where is the truth that is shaping this? Um, if you guys were to assess where you think you're at um, as a church, uh, how many of you would say, hey, we lean more on the, the love side? Raise your hand. Okay, a couple of you. Uh, more, more of you. Um, how many of you would say we lean more on the truth side? Handful of you. Okay, so you guys are just confused. You're not, you're not sure. Or, or, or you've got it totally right. You're like, we're, like, how many of you think you do a pretty great job, truth and truth and love? Okay, great. So a handful of you there as well. So think about this. this what I, what's being laid out into this definition right away is that discipleship is relational. It's, it's not for the classroom. It's not, and, and we gotta really, you know, talk about this in the Bay Area where most people live life in their heads exclusively. But Jesus calls us to live life and to love, to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, don't reduce disciple making, don't reduce church to just, to just the head. I mean, my church may be like yours, like engineers are just everywhere. Um, and, and want to sometimes get following Jesus to, to fit into this nice perfect Excel spreadsheet with all the right info in their head. And, and we, we, we want to blow that up. Uh, it's, it's truth, it's love coming at you through relationship. So right away with this working definition, you, anyone in this room can start making disciples. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can start transferring truth and love through relationship. And obviously we, we always want it to be both. Uh, if it's only truth, that's, that's not going to go well. If it's only love, that's not going to go well. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. What, what translation do you guys use here? ESV. The especially spiritual version. I like that. That's, that's great. That's what, that's what we use too. Great. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call on someone to read this for, for us. Um, this is Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he is talking about the way in which he was relating to the church in Thessalonica when he was with them. So could someone read First Thess 2.8 for us? Nice and loud. Yeah, there we go. Tracy. Okay, never forget that verse. Let that verse be a nucleus for you as you forge what it looks like for you guys to make disciples as a church. Uh, do, you, do you hear what Paul's saying? We were affectionately desirous of you. Like church in Thessalonica, we cared, we really cared about you. We had affectionate desire for you. And so we shared with you not only the gospel, but also our very selves, or some translations also our very lives. Truth and love transferred through relationship. 
Paul shared the gospel and his very life with these people. And he had affectionate desire for these people. So when you're going, gosh, who does God want me to disciple? Like, start with desire. Who does God give you a heart for? Who does God give you a desire for? God might call you into discipleship relationships with people that are like really difficult. Man, I don't even like this person. What's going on? That might happen sometimes. But very often, God gives you a heart for someone. And you go, I really desire, I really care about this person. So I want to share the gospel in my life with them. Um, words inform relationships transform. So you want to use lots of words, truth, but then relationships are where people really get, really get transformed. Okay, so we're, I mean, we're just getting started on the sheet. So session two might include some of the sheet um, as well. Uh, next question I have on there is what is a disciple? So we define discipleship. You and your church need to have a defini- a working definition of what a disciple is. There are a variety of different ways you can try to get at the core of it. This is how we get it at the core of it. A disciple is someone who enjoys Jesus, follows Jesus, and brings others to Jesus. So that's what, what a disciple is. A disciple enjoys Jesus. The gospel is transformed. They really enjoy Jesus. They're following Jesus with their life. And, then, and they're bringing other people to Jesus. You know this. This happens all the time in churches. People say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. But that person has, there's nothing going on in their life in the past year to bring other one, another person towards Jesus. And we see right away in the Gospels that when Jesus calls someone to himself, he calls them to both follow him and fish for him. That, that, that's just, that just comes with the Gospel. If you know the living God, if you've truly encountered the best news in the universe, you're going to increasingly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be the kind of person that's just contagious and can't help but want to bring others to Jesus to have them know him. So that's what a, a disciple is. Now, here's the big question. How? How do you do this? How do you make a disciple? Well, I'm trying to kind of decomplicate this. You do it by by creating a relational environment. You you get a relationship going with someone where truth and love gets transferred. They're 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 getting trained. They're being known. They're being loved. They're getting trained. They're being they're being sent. Um, I say this. You see, to start by prayerfully selecting your guys gals. Jesus took time to pray about who his disciples and who his apostles would be. Um, I, I would hope that. It, Sometime in this fall season, as you grow as disciple makers, you would prayerfully select who Jesus is calling you to disciple or be in discipleship relationships with. Now, I want to say that the way this is written, it's written pretty top down. It's written kind of assuming that you are the disciple maker and you're selecting people to make disciples of. And I think that that format can really work and is really helpful. But I, but as you think about this, try not to think about that that's the only way that this, this works. Like the way I practice this in my church is also very much like I want to learn from guys I'm discipling if they're believers and I want them to, to teach me. Um, I just started a new life. We do our church, we just do three things, gather on Sundays, gather in life groups, and be a Christian all week long. Um, and so for a life group, I just started a new life group last week with a group of nine men. Um, and the reason I started this group was a guy in my church, uh, Toye, Toye Peters, he sent me an email and asked me if I could start discipling him. And what I always like to do is group discipleship, because I could disciple that guy and he could learn some good things from me, but he's going to learn a lot more if I get a group of us men together and we're mutually kind of discipling one another and growing. And so I started this life group with nine men, and and that's the vision I started to lay out, like we're here to grow. Uh, I went over these kinds of definitions, and let's transfer truth and love through relationship into one another's lives. So so don't hear this only top-down as as we work through it. 
we, we talk about here, you'll see the note here, we talk about how we don't want these discipleship relationships to compete with Sundays or, or our life groups, our, our church rhythm. Sometimes that can happen in church. I don't know if that's ever happened here where people go, well, I'm not going to come to church on Sunday because I'm just, I'm just meeting with my three discipleship relationships and that's, that's where it's really at. You know, like you don't want to create that. That's not, that's not healthy. That's not good. Um, so, so be thinking, be thinking about who, who the Lord might want you to select to disciple. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Uh, because Jesus gave his church only one mission, to make disciples. That's why. Can someone turn to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 for us, and, and read that to the group? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Yeah. Yeah. So this is how Matthew ends his his gospel with this command from Jesus. The central command in there, the central imperative is is make disciples. Um, and, and we've got these great promises on, on on both that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, and He's with us to the to the end of the age. So this is why we do it because Jesus gave us this command. It's it's the whole purpose of the church. What's the what's the mission statement of your church? Who can say it? What? Make disciples, great. What's your website say? What does it, I mean? Follow Jesus and lead others to follow Jesus. Great. There you go. Model church member right there. You can say the church's <laughs> mission statement, right? Right? So what is, how, okay, so let's, let, we're all going to learn this right now. So what, say it one more time. Fo- <laughs> follow, follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus. So how many, how many words is that? Follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus. Seven words. That's great. Very biblical number. So whenever you're like, no, but it's great. Whenever you're like, what is the church's mission again? Just remember, seven words. Follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus. Right? So like you got, so okay, let's, let's all say it together what the church's mission is. Follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus. Okay, great. So you, you know your church's mission now. Like this, my job's done today. You figured it out. Um, you, that, that's your guys' way of stating the great commission. How beautiful. Your church's mission is the same mission that Jesus gave the church, the Great Commission. And that's what we're here to do today, to follow Jesus and help others learn to follow Jesus. So moving along here, what should you do when gathering with your guys, gals? So we're kind of continuing to unpack the how. Um, you, you now have this working definition that as a disciple maker, you're trying to transfer truth and love through relationship. You've got this great motive, this great why. It's the one mission Jesus gave his church. Now you're thinking about how do I do this? Okay, well, I'm going to create a relational environment. I'm going to start to have some regular meetings with my guys or with my gals. What should I do when I meet with them? Gosh, this feels overwhelming. There's so much ground to cover. What should I do? Uh, I'd say there's just three main things you need to do, and that is connect, train, and pray. Connect, train, and pray. Connect, train, and pray. Connect. What does connect mean? Uh, most of you already know how to do this well. Uh, others of you of you don't. Connect means enjoying relationship. C- connect, talk, sit down, have have some food, have some table fellowship. Hey, ask some basic questions. How are you? How was your day? 
What's, what's going on in your heart? What's, what's God been doing in your life this week? You just start connecting. You start growing uh, trust and safety and relationship, a, a culture of grace. I mean, this is, this is huge. You want to, in these discipleship relationships, create a culture of grace where people will be real where they will be honest with you about what is really going on in their lives. Most of you are aware that this this oftentimes does not happen in a church. That you get together with your church, you get together with your life group, you get together with some buddies, and people are just trying to kind of put on a good church face and, and, and all that, a pretend version of themselves, a polished version of themselves. Uh, if you want a real movement of disciple-making, it starts with an ability to connect and to be real and to be raw and to be honest. Um, and that really starts with, if, if you're kind of the leader of a discipleship group or some folks, that starts with a leader. The leader's ability to be honest and, and real, raw, vulnerable really helps set that tone um, for, for the rest of people. Uh, and then train. Uh, identify specific ways that the guys, the gals you're discipling need to train. Now, we're going to talk about these nine components along the side of this as we, as we continue to move through. But really, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has way more passion than you ever could to see the gospel go forward and to see disciples made. And you got to trust that the Holy Spirit, he lives inside of you, and he's going to guide you. Uh, he's going to show you things in this person's life that you need to help them with, that you need to train them with. Um, and most of those things are just, they're just going to surface over time, and you're going to identify that. Um, and obviously most central to this is, is reading and discussing the Bible together. I mean, it really is, is as simple as gather together and connect, get into each other's lives, kind of read the Bible together, See what, what surfaces, uh, press into those things and, and pray. And, and, and that's how we can really grow as disciples. We, we encourage our people to ask these two questions. These are self-feeder questions for the rest of their life. Uh, what is God saying to me and what am I going to do about it? Um, we want to, we want to make disciples that are always asking that question. What is God saying to me? God speaks, I listen. God is communicating to me through His Word, through community, through the Holy Spirit. What is he saying to me? And then, what am I going to do about it? Empowered by the gospel, how am I to respond to this God who has spoken to me? What's my, what is my next step of obedience? What is my next step in following the call of Jesus? Um, under train, you hear me say that, I say this right here, give homework or missions. Uh, I do that a lot as I'm discipling guys. I'll give them, I'll give them homework. I'll give them different, uh, missions to complete. I mean, Jesus was always doing that with his disciples. He was always putting his disciples in pretty crazy situations as a way for them to grow. So what, what some homework that I've given in the past, uh, like what, with those 12 men years ago, I had all of them, uh, each week as a different guy, take home the Jesus storybook Bible. You guys have seen that probably, right? The Jesus storybook Bible, uh, written for kids. It was so helpful for adults. And I had that guy read that book over the course of the week and come back and report to the whole group on what, what he's learning from that. And that was really powerful to see a 60 year old take a Jesus storybook Bible, read it over the course of the week, come back to the rest of the guys and talk about ways in which Jesus had become bigger to him and more that, more that he had seen. So I might give homework like that. Um, or, or I might be talking with a guy and realizing, oh my gosh, his, he just doesn't have any kind of like a prayer life going on. With, the only time he's praying is when, is when he's with all of us. Uh, so I might just give him something as simple like, hey, I want you just to put time on your calendar to pray five minutes a day for this next week. And just like, then, then come report back to me in a week. I'm like, what what'd you see? What did you learn? How did that deepen your intimacy with God? So you give you give kind of kind of homework, uh, and then pray. Third thing is pray. Just praying together. 
Uh, praying together is really powerful. The method that I use for teaching people how to pray is what I call the three R's. Rejoice, repent, request. Um, if people aren't trained to pray, um, wh- what are people naturally just going to do when they, when they pray? Request. request. Which is so great to do because we have this Father who loves us, who wants us to come to Him as His sons and daughters and lay our requests before Him. Wonderful component of prayer. But you're going to miss these other parts of prayer. Uh, rejoice. So I, I, I train our people in, in beginning prayer with rejoice. Just rejoice in who God is. Rejoice in what God's done. Give thanks. Then move into some repentance. Where, where are you called to repent of, of some sin? And then and then get into request. So that's the method the method I use. Um, I'll tell you a story of one guy. I was hanging out with him last night. He's become one of my best friends. Great guy, Chris Carney. Chris Carney showed up at our church, uh, not as a believer. Um, he, he had heard about our church from, from Twitter. Uh, he, he, and then saw my book, Date Your Wife, came to, tw- came to our church, started coming. He got saved at our church, uh, bap- I was discipling him, saved, baptized, I did his wedding. Um, what, what I did to disciple this guy, all it was was this. There was nothing complicated. I didn't like need to consult some crazy manual of like, how do I disciple this unique guy? I just said, oh, I'm gonna start hanging out with him. I'm going to get to know his story. I'm going to have him feel safe. Uh, I'm going to love him. I'm going to transfer truth and love through relationship with him. I'm going to train him in some things. I'm going to pray big that God would save this guy's life. Today, this guy, he started his own company. He's an entrepreneur. He started his own company. He employs uh, six, seven different people from our church. And he's this guy who's like this caregiver to all these people in our church now. So God can do really cool things through ordinary people like you and me who do very ordinary things like relationship and transferring truth and, and praying. Um, it'll be exciting to see how God's going to continue to use all of you as disciple makers. Final question in the middle, how do you know when you've succeeded? Um, you know, there's all kinds of metrics to use in a church. It's kind of, you know, many of you are in companies where you have different metrics to measure success in your company. How do you do that in the church? And there are some obvious metrics in the church, like measure Sunday attendance, measure giving, measure how many groups you have, that, that kind of a thing. But how do you measure disciple making? How do you measure transformation? That's kind of difficult. One of the metrics we use in our church, uh, which is the most subjective metric, is stories. Like how many stories are we hearing of transformation, of, of life change, of this person's been healed in this cool way because they more deeply believe the gospel. Um, this person's overcoming sin in this way because the Holy Spirit's at work in their life. Um, stories of disciple-making. Another metric that I think is important to use, and it's important that you know how to kind of measure disciple-making, how do you know this has been successful, is, is this person's gone on to make disciples of their own. You don't want to make disciples with people who just stay in the same like discipleship group for 10 years. You know, that, that, that's not the, the end goal. The end goal, remember how we defined a disciple, it's also someone who's bringing other people to Jesus. You want to be discipling people in such a way that they go on to make disciples of their own. Okay? Uh, multiplication is the aim, is the goal. Uh, disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. Uh, what do you guys call your groups at your church? Community, community group. Commu- healthy community groups grow in health, grow in size, grow in you know, the way the Spirit's working in them, and they reproduce community groups. Uh, healthy churches over time grow and reproduce churches. So that's, that's always Jesus' aim and what you want to be pursuing. Now let's start walking through, uh, starting from, from the left-hand side, let's start walking through these nine training components. 
Again, the history of this is me trying to put a playbook in the hands of my church and go, these are the, the core components that we got to address here in the Silicon Valley as we, as we make disciples. So first, and this is so critical, is story. Story. Uh, you you want to learn that guy, that gal's story. What what is the real situation of their life? What is what is their story? And so there's just a simple reflection question there to help you as a disciple maker. Do you know their story? Do you know their story? Um, I I give a lot of time to this in relationships. I give a lot of time to this in making disciples. Is hey tonight, uh, let's just be together and let's let's just hear Scott's story. We're just here for an hour, and this whole first hour of this time, Scott's gonna, just going to tell us the story of his life, and we're going to listen well, and we're going to ask some questions, and those questions will tease out more of the story. Um, because you see the, the, the big, bold word going here is known. We, we, we want this person to feel known. Uh, we want this person to feel known by God. We want this person to feel known by us, known by, known by this relationship. Um, most people... And I know, like, if you're the kind of person where you've told your story to a lot of people and you feel known, you maybe don't feel this is true, but it really is true. Most people have not been able to really tell their story to, to some safe people. You know, most people that you work with, they just haven't, they haven't been able to do that. And so to just get this, to just have a safe relationship where someone can really share the full story of their lives, um, the real situation of their lives at the time, what, the, what they're going through, that alone is, is really powerful. And something I've really found as an adult, maybe you found this, um, it's important that you keep telling your story, too. Um, every time you tell your story to a safe person, to your spouse, to a best friend, to um, some folks in the church, to a friend, every time you're, you tell your story, you, you make new discoveries and you heal in some new ways. You kind of you make some new connections. You go, oh, yeah, that's I really did go through that trauma. I really did sin in that way. I really was struggling with this. And um, you just, you see more and, and you and you heal more. So it's really powerful to be able to tell your story. What what we're doing in stories is we're, we're preparing for how to integrate the gospel with all of our life. We're not wanting, transferring truth and love through relationship isn't just to get the gospel to make someone look good at how they attend church on Sundays, right? We want, we want the gospel to invade how this person does relationships, how they approach God, people, relationships, how they handle money, um, how they come at work, how they come at rest, how they do parenting, uh, every, every area, every sphere of their life. So, uh, learning someone's story is the first and most critical piece. Um, second piece, and these don't necessarily go in order, but it's kind of a, a, a natural flow. But it's not like start with, with, I mean, one is very pretty important to start with, but they all kind of overlap. Second is idol and first love. Um, identifying, identifying someone's idols. I'm sure you guys talk here about how sin isn't merely the surface behavior you see, the surface disobedience or this... Um, bad choice someone makes that's on the surface. The, what, what really is sin is that we're putting something other than God first in our lives or worshiping something else. It's, it's getting at the motivational center, the core of someone's heart, the orbit of their life. Um, and everyone has idols that they're, that they're tempted, tempted towards. Um, we talk about these four idols in our church. You guys talk about these idols of control, approval, power. You guys talk about these here a little bit. Okay, yeah, let me just talk about these. I, there's so many different idols, but we talk about these these four. Um, and you might want, and this gives common language to our disciple making. Um, a lot of people are going to have control 
as their primary idol that they struggle with. Um, and you know that someone has a control idol if their greatest nightmare is uncertainty. Just they can't handle uncertainty in their life. Everything needs to be controlled and certain. That's how you can begin to identify that in your life or in someone else's life. A lot of people are going to have an approval idol. And you know that, that someone has an approval idol if their greatest nightmare is rejection. They, just don't, they don't want to be rejected. They want to have everyone's, everyone's approval. Um, a lot of people have a comfort idol as their main idol. Uh, that's if their greatest nightmare is sort of stress and demands. Don't put stress on me. Don't put demands on me. I want to keep my life very comfortable. Um, and then a lot of people have a power idol. Um, that's if their greatest nightmare is humiliation. I just never want to be humiliated. I always want to be the person in power. I always have to have power over others. So right away with just those four idols, and there's more that we could talk about, you've kind of got a language for beginning to poke into the people you're discipling and identify what it is that's sort of driving driving their life. Um, and until until we can really see the idols in our life and repent of those idols, not merely surface behavior, we're not going to experience deep transformation because we still... You know, control is my primary idol. Because then you can just stay a person who control is really the ultimate thing in your life and you just kind of have some Jesus kind of taped around and, 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 and sprinkled on top rather than Jesus truly being the core and the center that's driving your life. So, so you, you want to do that. Um, you know, we want to go after people's, I, I try to like, just, when I identify idols in guys' lives, especially if they're not being honest about it, especially if they don't have the humility or maturity or self-awareness yet to say, yeah, you're right. Like, I control really is a big idol in my life. Um, I just mess with them. I just like I just try to totally disturb that idol. Like if someone's a control idol, I'll try to bring as much uncertainty in their life as I can. I'll just I'll just try to because like Jesus did this. Jesus is like, okay, you're following me, you're my disciples, I'm gonna take you out in the sea and have a big huge storm come. And you're just gonna be freaking out. And and you know what? You're gonna see though that I'm with you in that storm and that you can trust me and that I can calm that storm. And so I just try to find unique ways to sort of, if it's an approval idol person, um, I'll just like try to make it clear like they don't have my approval or whatever. I'll just do it. Like, I'll just, I'll just try to, and like, but I'll do it intentionally. Like, I want them to know I love them, but I'm gonna intentionally like press on some things and let them see like some disappointment from me in some things or whatever to drive them deeper to the gospel. Like, you need to find your ultimate approval in the gospel, not in what your pastor thinks of you. Or whatever. So I just I try to I try to mess I try to mess with it. That's always kind of fun. Um, keep keep this in mind though as I talk about this. Um, it's really important. It's really critical in your theology and in your disciple making to distinguish between sin, wounds, and weaknesses. Always distinguish between sin, wounds, and weaknesses. Great damage can come. If you're discipling someone and you're trying to get them to repent of wounds, you don't do that. Sin and idolatry, we need to see and own and identify and repent of. Okay? Wounds, this is all going back to someone's story. Their story is full of sin, wounds, and weaknesses. Wounds, you don't repent of wounds, you heal of wounds. Okay? So as you get to know your story and someone else's story, you're going to see, okay, this there, this isn't sin, this is wounds. This is where they were sinned against. This is where they just experienced the fallenness and the brokenness of this world. That's an area for healing, not repentance. And then there's also weaknesses, which aren't sin or wounds. It's just we're, we're not omnicompetent. 
all, we have areas of strength and we have areas of weakness. And you just kind of identify, hey, this person with, given their story, given their personality, given, this is just like an area of limitation for them, an area of weakness for them. It's, it's a place where the gospel can, can show up and God's strength can show up with extraordinary power. Really important that you do that. You, you don't want to try to, you know, turn everyone's weaknesses into all their strengths and all that. Distinct, have that threefold category. Sin, wounds, weaknesses. Um, third piece on here, identity. Identity. Just begin drilling into the person their new identity that's based on grace, not performance. And, you know, again, keep in mind that you might be discipling a group of people that are a mix of believers and non-believers. Like what I'm trying to do with this life group I just started at my house. We meet on Wednesday nights at my house, um, you know, over some wine. And it right now is eight believers and it's a group I'm seeking to bring a bunch of my non-Christian buddies into. And, you know, you have to be careful with your language, right? Because, like, those non-Christian buddies don't yet have this new identity, right? They're still separated from Christ. But um, for, for the believers, drill into them this, this new identity that's based on grace, not performance. You and I, the default mode of our hearts, and the, the Bay Area uh, performance culture just constantly reinforces is just a performance-based approach to life, you know? As long as I get the A, as long as I get the promotion, as long as I get the results... Um, at work, then okay, I must be I must be an okay person. But Jesus transforms all of that for us, and gives us a new identity based on grace, based on what He's done for us, not on what we do. And you just got to drill that into people's heads. You got to constantly remind them they're a, they're a son, they're a daughter, they're a child of God. They're forgiven and loved. They're they're free. You got to just drill drill that into them. Uh, that can you can never do that too much. Uh, let's move over to number four. It's the right side of the page. It's this loved column. Encouragement. Um, I'm really passionate about creating in my church and nurturing in my church a culture of encouragement. Um, have any of you ever had a day where you felt too encouraged? Where you're like, please stop encouraging me. I've been too encouraged. That never has happened, right? Like you just, you have like self-critical thoughts in your head, or, or, or critical, you know, thoughts and, and criticisms that have come your way from other people. Um, we could all use, I think, a lot more encouragement. Um, that's one of the one another commands that appears throughout Scripture. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Um, encouragement is powerful. Encouragement is speaking words of life into a person. Uh, Barnabas, the son of encouragement. God used him to speak encouragement into people. Encouragement is, is putting lightning in someone's veins and saying, this is how I see God at work in you. This is how God can use you. I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a pretty different guy when I'm encouraged. When I, when I've received encouragement, uh, when I, when I've heard it, when it's been coming at me regularly, I don't know. I just kind of feel like I can take on the world. I'm like, I, let's, let's go. I trust the Lord. Let's go. I can do this. When I don't have that, it hurts. Like, um, my wife and I, we have we have different love languages, and um, her the way she expresses love is is not through words, but words words mean a lot to me. Um, her natural way is kind of service, and um, you know, I've talked to her about, and we've got a great marriage; she's awesome. Uh, but I've talked to her, I'm like, babe, when you have these like words of encouragement for me, it just it is so powerful, especially coming from you. It's like one of the goals she has for this year is it's a simple goal, but is to encourage me three times a day. And that seems simple, but like that's been massive in my life. She's been doing it. Just this, uh, we set, we start like August first is kind of our new year, school new year, and that's when we set our goals. And it's been making this. I, I'm like riding high. 
Like, it's just really cool because she's just telling me these things. Um, you can do that with other people. You can speak words of encouragement that are really powerful. I'm trying to remember that as a dad. Because I have these three boys who I adore and who I love. Um, but it can be easy to critique them. You know, it can be easy to be like, quit chewing with your mouth open. Like, quit doing this. You know, like, all, all this stuff. And, um, man, I just want to, I want to be known. I want them to be 25 years old, 35 years old, and just be like, man, the most encouraging person in my life is my dad. You know, and that's what I grew up with in my home, and that's what I still have now with my dad. i got a long ways to go. I really want to keep growing there. So um, you're, as you're transferring truth and love through relationship, sometimes when you're at that truth, and we're going to get at this in the next component, sometimes it's hard things you have to say, okay? But I would say major in the encouragement side. Major in, oh, my gosh, I see God doing this in you. Oh my gosh, when you, when you said this, I just see like you're maturing, you're growing. Oh, I think God's really gifted you in this way. Like that, that carries so much, so much power. Um, so, so create a culture of encouragement. And, and that's not just for discipleship relationships. That's for a whole church. You know, speak words of encouragement to your pastors, to your elders. Speak words of encouragement to your community group leaders. Speak words of encouragement to one another. Have that be that that kind of culture. I mean, what if you guys could be known as the most encouraging church in this area? I mean, that that would people would want to come to a church where they're just being, worth, what's that? Yeah, I don't know, I don't know, but imagine, I don't know. It's my first time with you guys. So we'll see. I'll let you know when I leave. We'll see how much encouragement I get before I go. There we go. There we go. Now let's move to this next one. Number five: honesty, honesty, and self awareness. Okay. Before we've gotten here, again, they, they overlap. They don't necessarily go in order. But before we've gotten here, you have created a culture of safety. You have created the kind of relation, like the kind of relationship I aim to create with guys I disciple is the kind of relationship where guys just feel like no matter what, I am for them. They're like, I love you. I'm here. I'm safe. You can tell me anything. I'll, I'll keep whatever you share with me confidential. I love you. I'm for you. If you've really forged that kind of relationship, if you've really earned the trust of that person, you've earned the ability to be really honest with them, okay? And to really help them in self-awareness. Give direct, honest feedback even when it's hard. Most people don't have this. Okay. Now that is yes. Most people have heard criticism and and all of that. Uh, they've heard it from their boss. They've heard it from mom and dad. They've heard it in the church. But I'm talking about honest feedback that's not threatening. It's hard. It might sting. It might hurt. But it's it's for that person's best. It's because you love them. It's because you want to see the gospel mature them and transform them and free them and heal them and grow them. And that is a gift. Like that, that is rare. There are not many relationships like that. I am so thankful for my relationship. I'll just use the example of my elders. The elders of my church, there's me and four other guys. They, they love me. They're for me. They encourage me. And man, they give me honest feedback, uh, about hard things sometimes. And it's super helpful. It's communicated with a face of love. It's communicated with care. It's communicated with, like, they want the best for me. They want to see me be the best possible leader, pastor, man of God that I can be. That's a gift, a gift, a gift to me. 
and you can give that gift to, to other people. And you can be the kind of person who's open to receiving that gift as you tell friends, hey, I want this. We have a phrase on my staff and in our church culture, run to the tension. Um, and that is that if there's ever an issue, uh, a, a concern, a, 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 some tension going on between you and the other person, our cultural rule is you have to run to that tension and deal with it. So I tell my staff, I tell my elders, um, if I ever have any kind of a concern or issue with you, you'll never have to guess or wonder. You'll never have to wonder, like, is Justin mad at me? Is he, like, feeling this? Is he frustrated? Because I'll tell you. I just said, like, I, I, will, I will be, and that's also my personality, so part of that's personality-based. But I'll, I'll come to you, and I'll tell you, I'll talk about what's going on, um, and, and I'll do it, hopefully, in, in love, but, but I'll tell you. Um, so you want that kind of a culture with the people you're, you're discipling, where you can run the tension, you can deal with it. When we don't run the tension, you've all experienced this, things are like a, it's like a beach ball that you're like pushing under the water and you're kind of keeping it down there. And then one day it just comes roaring up to the top and it's just kind of explosive. Um, you want to deal with things sooner rather than later. Um, Honesty and self-awareness. Helpful to use tools with this. I hear there, you see me talk about, uh, use this tool, unique design. Uh, we've, we don't use that tool anymore. We use a different tool. I'm sure you've probably heard of it. The Enneagram. Are you guys familiar with that or use, use that? How many of you use that, that tool, that test? One, two, three, a handful of you. Um, Is it associated with the new age? Yeah, so when I first, no. So when I first saw the Enneagram, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I first saw it. If you've ever seen what it looks like, I thought, like, what is this thing, a pentagram? Like, what is this? this you know what you It's terrible. Um, it, it's a really helpful tool. Um, it's a very helpful tool if used by mature believers for, for self-awareness. Um, I've used a lot of, I will just speak for myself, I've used a lot of different personality profiles through the years to help with honesty and self-awareness, help people identify their gifts, make disciples. This, for me, by far, has been the best tool, um, the most helpful tool. So, yeah. Uh, I want you to guess. Nope. None too. So I'm going to let you keep guessing. I'm going to have you come back in the q and I'm going to have you keep guessing and see. Yeah, yeah. So uh, good question. It's a very helpful tool that uses nine main numbers for identifying. This is what's helpful about the tool. You take strengths. You guys familiar with StrengthsFinder? Anyone use StrengthsFinder? Helpful. Yeah. Okay. StrengthsFinder is helpful. It tells you, like, your five greatest strengths. Uh, so basically, you take Strengths Finder and you, le- and you learn everything you're awesome at. Uh, but with Enneagram, it tells you uh, where you have some major problems too. Uh, the Enneagram gets after the motiva- what the motives of a person, not just their strengths and not just kind of the behavior you see on the surface, but re- what really motivates a person. Um, I will never hire someone on our staff. I will never make someone an elder. I will never make someone a life group leader. I um, will never marry a couple unless they've taken this test. Uh, the test gives that helpful of data for knowing what makes a person tick and working with them. So that's the strongest endorsement I could possibly give to it. Um, so it's a, it's a helpful tool. I can get to your to your guys, the, the one we use. There's free versions online that are dumb. You don't want to do that. You want to take like the official um, official thorough test. Okay, honesty and self-awareness. Um, let's talk about time, and then I'll, then we'll then we'll take a break, and and we'll and we'll do some more stuff in session two. Time. Okay, spend a lot of time with your guys, gals, in a variety of situations. If you make discipleship just, hey, we met uh, here in this room, in the cafeteria, multi-purpose room, at the school once a week, and that's how we did it, 
you're not seeing them in a variety of different settings. You want to have a variety of settings. What is it like when you're together at a restaurant, when you're together maybe in their workplace, when you're together in different homes? I'm always having a variety of settings to these discipleship relationships because different sides of a person come out when you see them in different ways. So you really want to have variety. Um, I really feel like one of the great secrets to Jesus' ministry was lots of long walks with his disciples and, and, and lots of meals with them and lots of adventures. Um, Jesus never went faster than three miles an hour. He was just on these long walks with his disciples, going from Galilee to Jerusalem, down here, down there, just spending a lot of time together as the sun went up and as the sun went down, talking, praying, unpacking scripture, uh, being, being together. Jesus had lots of long meals, just table fellowship, ancient Near Eastern culture at, at the table together, um, off on different adventures with his disciples. So get lots of time together. Get it in a variety of contexts. Could someone uh, turn, or let's all turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Could someone read that to us? Yeah. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree to the glory of another. Okay. Oh, sorry. No, keep going. Okay. So that's Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He's saying, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So what he is saying is the way transformation happens, the way people change, what he said was one degree of glory to another. He didn't say 90 degrees. He said one degree. So you need to have a realistic theology of transformation, of development, of maturity as you make disciples. We don't transform every overnight. Yes, sometimes there are conversions or moments of sanctification that are, that are very radical. That, yes, that happens, absolutely. Breakthroughs. But generally, you and I, we're, we're changing one degree of glory to another. It, it takes time. You know, it takes time to, to, to mature, to grow, to heal. And that's why I talk about time in this way. You want to spend a lot of time with the folks that, you, that you're discipling. Sometimes we get these really ambitious goals. Like, this is going to be the year where I transform, heal, grow in this way. And man, you do grow, but maybe maybe you grew by three degrees, right? Or sometimes you're discipling someone. This is going to be the year where like Tim just is transformed. Well, that might be the year that Tim transforms, you know, two, three, four degrees of glory to another. And that's enough, you know. That, that that's enough. That's what that's what um, Jesus is at work, and He wants us to have that understanding of time. So um, let's let's take a break now, and we'll, when we come back, we'll we'll continue working through this, the other tool, uh, Q and A. Um, stand up, rest, I don't know, any instructions, David? Do, snacks, whatever. I'm around here to talk. I hope you had a good break. I had another sandwich. It was it was good. All right. There are there are more sandwiches in the back. Hey, also books. 
there's a there's a sheet going back there because some of you didn't have cash or checks. So you can go back to that sheet or go back to Tracy. And if you want if you want a book, uh, I guess you can take it. You just have to write your name down and make sure you pay the church tomorrow or soon or something something like that. Okay, so great. Um, and then they're also available on online too. Okay, where were we? Did six right? So now we're on seven. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna finish up this sheet. We're gonna talk about another. Um, Another thing, another tool, and we'll do some questions and maybe have some time for prayer too. Okay, number seven. Number seven, uh, church and city. Church and city. You you need to teach the folks that you are discipling the importance of gathering and scattering with the local church. Uh, most people don't have a good understanding of the local church. They need to be taught it. They need to be modeled it. Um you know, I, I just start with guys. I just start saying, "Hey, you all want to come with me? Come, come, come to service with me. Come to church with me. Get in, get into my life group. Um, just teach them the theology of the church, the importance of the church. Um, teach people. You're, you're trying to teach people that this whole follow Jesus thing is much bigger than them and Jesus. You can't keep Jesus to yourself. Jesus is to be shared with the church, to be shared with with the world. That they've become they've become part of a new." Family. I've seen people make the mis- mistake when they're so focused on just like these three disciples they're making. They haven't taught their disciples the big vision of you are part of this church body and you're, you contribute to the church body. I want to see disciples of Jesus start to take ownership for the church right away, right? Right as they're converted. I'm part of this church family. I'm a brother. I'm a sister here. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a part of the body and I have a unique role to play in this church and I'm taking ownership uh, for for the role I have to play in the church, um, you know I'm I'm always thinking you know you see this line here develop your guys your gals into leaders when I when I start working with a group of guys it doesn't matter their age it does not matter their maturity level I'm always thinking about their potential I'm always thinking about how to develop them into leaders um, this is the way Jesus worked with people he always seemed to see people's potential. He wasn't just focused on the sin that they were currently trapped in or the current situation and circumstances in life. He saw the potential of who they could become and how they could transform. So always be thinking of that with your leader, with your people. How can I develop them into leaders? So with the eight guys who are in my life group right now, what I already laid the groundwork for this life group and for these discipleship relationships that we're in. As I said, my full expectation is that each of you men are going to develop as leaders and we're going to find lanes for you to run in in our church. We're going to, we're going to learn more what your gifts are, what your talents are, and I want to figure out how you can be greater leaders within our church and greater leaders within, within our city. So you want, you want to be thinking about that. And I already told them, uh, at least two, maybe three of you guys will be raised up as leaders. You'll become deacons in our church. Our deacons are the ones who lead our life groups in our, in our church context. And you'll, you're going to multiply out of this life group and start a life group of your own. And so I've laid that expectation and that vision of leadership and multiplication from the very beginning. Um, next is enemy number eight. Uh, okay. Church, you, you know this, uh, Satan hates you. He, Satan hates you. He hates that this is happening right now, that we are discussing and talking about this. Satan hates the church. Satan hates discipleship. Satan hates the gospel. Satan hates a group of leaders who are in this room right now learning about discipleship. You have to, to train your, um, your disciples in this. I have really seen, being a pastor now for 16, 17 years in the Bay Area, I have seen a huge de-emphasis on the supernatural here. 
Uh, we like to, we, we got a lot of pride going here in the Bay Area. You know, we're, we're making progress, we're successful, we're developing our technology, and, and just people's worldview has shrunk to become very humanistic, and people just miss, obviously, our big, huge, wonderful God, but also this entire unseen realm and supernatural realm of Satan and his demons. And Paul, you know, you see the, the scripture references here, Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 10. I'm preaching Ephesians right now to my church. Uh, just our, our wrestles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the principalities, the powers in the heavenly places. So you got to teach the people you're discipling that they have an enemy that hates them. Well, I, I always, I mean, this happens, I don't know if this happens to you, but anytime I am kind of in sort of new, a new venture in the kingdom of God, uh, sharing the gospel with someone, making a disciple, some a new initiative within the church, starting a new preaching series, whatever. Man, Satan comes after me in all kinds of ways. And I experience spiritual attack and threat. And Satan loves to attack people who are a threat to his kingdom of darkness. And you got to really warn and disciple your disciples in this, that Satan's after them, Satan hates them. Uh, Satan's going to use the same old strategies that he's always been using, going back to Genesis chapter 3. He's going to use deceit, he's going to use lies, he's going to try to get your focus off of God and the good and onto, onto negative things, and you got to teach him how to fight. So I'm a big believer, and, and you got to train your disciples that there is a battle to fight. And I feel like that speaks in a really powerful way to men. Uh, many men in our culture who feel emasculated uh, and who feel that in the church too and kind of like, what, where's my where's my battle to fight? And I feel like men especially need to know that in following Jesus, they're getting swept into this, this huge battle where they've got a battle of the fight to advance the kingdom of God. Um, I, I found that the Lord really uses that. So train them, teach them how to fight. Scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You got to train your people. You got to train your people in that. Ninth, uh, finally, multiply. Multiply. Um, some, let's all turn to Second Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy chapter two. So this is Paul, uh, probably the last letter he wrote, written to a pastor, Timothy, and he's giving him pastoral instructions on what's most important. And leading the church, Second uh, Timothy chapter two, verse two. Could someone read that for us? And the things you have heard me say in defense of many witnesses, trust to reliable people, will also be bought by the Yeah. So what what do you what do you hear there? What's going on right there? Yeah, yeah. It's disciple making. It's multiplication. That these are the kind of people you want to invest in. Make disciples of guys, gals who will make disciples of other guys, gals. Uh, you want it to multiply. You want, you want it to go. So um, that's how we said, you know, that you're successful in this, that your disciples are multiplying. Um, I always try to do like a, a graduation ceremony of sorts. Um, I try to make it special. I try to... Um, you know, pull guy, like things I've done before is I've, I've had like a real nice dinner over at my house. I've ordered in good food. Um, and I've just celebrated, uh, these guys. I, I've encouraged them. I've talked about how I've seen God at work in their life. Something that's really cool to do, this is kind of newer for me, uh, is you can name 
the guy, I think it can be really powerful. It's really powerful when people name, you know, you've been named before. Someone's called you uh, a bad name, a bad word, or something that stuck with you and all that, and that hurt you. But you've also been named before in really powerful ways, ways people have encouraged you and spoken words of life into you. I've been trying to give guys, like, a word or a phrase that try that I feel like the Holy Spirit's kind of given me after a time of prayer uh, that sums up who that guy kind of is. You know, how the Lord's at work through that guy, his gifts, his strengths, his talents. That's a great thing you can do in a ceremony like that. You can just say, hey, Jeremy, you know, I really see the Lord at work uh, in your life in this way. And I really, I want to give you this word. I have this word for you. I have this name for you. That's something you can do. Um, I've done like anointing with oil before. Where I've just like poured a little bit of oil. Where I'm like, man, I see this in scripture all the time. I don't totally know how this works, but I'm going <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And where I just like had like a little bit of oil, I put it on their heads, and like I don't really know what's going on there, but um, but those guys aren't going to forget that, and it was special, and it was like kind of a time of commissioning them out for for multiplication. Um, every case is unique. You see, I put a timeline here, and I don't know this. You can do this in different ways. I say three to twelve months. Three is really short, but the reason I have this here is because I've come from a church tradition more where people try to do these discipleship relationships that last like five years. And they just like huddle up forever and there's no moving out and there's no multiplication and things just sort of stagnate. And I've more in my church wanted to create a culture of have these relationships, train, transfer truth and love through relationship and then multiply out and let's just keep, let's keep doing that. So, um, you, you have to figure out your timeline. So maybe, maybe it's, um, six months, maybe it's nine months. That's a pregnancy. Maybe that's enough time. Uh, maybe 12 months. Maybe it's a year and a half. Uh, maybe two years, but really for me, anything going going beyond two years, uh, I start thinking, I don't know, this might be turning into kind of the holy huddle thing, and you might be losing sight of the mission for, for how Jesus wants to use this group. So um, that, that's that, that's the sheet. Um, as, as I walk you through the sheet again, the disclaimers I want to make are there's a lot more you could say about discipleship. This is trying to give a, a one-page playbook that gets at the core things. There's, there's a lot more that you can say. That's why there's different books that I that I recommend um, and all that. Uh, under back when we go back under train number two, there's four main books we've used in our church for disciple making. You see some of them mentioned there. The book, the big story, which is back there. That's one that I wrote. Uh, the book, the gospel by Ray Ortland. Uh, I don't know if anyone's read that book by Ray Ortland. Yeah, Michael back there is giving a thumbs up. Uh, great, great book um, on the gospel. Uh, this book, The Walk, it's written by an author, Stephen Smallman, a great guy, Presbyterian pastor, and it walks you through the Gospel of Mark, and it teaches you how to read Scripture, how to pray, how to take steps of obedience to Jesus. I use that book with people who've never heard about Jesus until, like, the week before, and I use that book with people who've been following Jesus for 30 years. Uh, and then Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God, super good on the Gospel. So those are four main books that we've supplemented this with and we've used in conjunction with this, I also recommend the book. If you've not read the book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, have you guys seen that book? Robert Coleman. Very good book. Robert Coleman was, or maybe still is, a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts. And he wrote, it's a short little book. It's super helpful. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. It's wrongly titled. It should be titled The Master Plan of Discipleship. But The Master Plan of Evangelism. And in, I mean, the book's pretty, it's like this tall. Like it's, it's really thin. It's like 100 pages it's gold. It is it's so good on disciple making. So I highly recommend that. Um, you know, the other disclaimers I'll, I'll give are um, this is messy. Like don't, this this sheet can maybe make it look like, hey, just do this and wham, bam, bam. We've got a disciple making movement going on. Disciple making is messy. 
Satan attacks, people are going to hurt you, you're going to hurt people, you're going to make mistakes, it's not going to be easy, um, so it's messy. Um, you're, I, I have discipleship uh, success stories and failures. I've got lots of success stories of men whose lives have been radically transformed, who are teaching to other men, teaching to other men, and it just goes on. I also have, I mean, even a story this last week, this guy that I discipled a number of years ago, like choices he's just recently made. I'm like, how how is this happening? Like, I disciple this guy. I spent so much time with this guy and he is making like the most elementary of just mistakes and judgment blunders and lack of wisdom and sin. And I like rack my brain. I'm like, did I do something wrong? Or where did I go? Did I not teach him this? And I not teach him that. And you know, so that, that, that happens, that happens too. Um, and it's all just, it's all super worth it. Um, this is the, this is the mission of the church, making disciples. Um, you know, the most important people I'm ever going to disciple live under my roof. You know, being a uh, leading my wife in my marriage and, and her growth in Christ, and then my three sons making disciples out of them—that's most important. But then after that, it's it's my whole church family and the disciples we make in the city. So it's worth your all. It's it's worth the mistakes and failures and mess and struggles that will come. And uh, I'm excited for you guys as a church to kind of keep taking steps forward in making disciples. So that's the sheet, and I want us to transfer. To talking about some other things, and, and then we'll have some some Q and A time. Let me let me grab something back here. Okay, so I mean, how are you guys feeling right now? Are you guys feeling like encouraged? Like this is helpful? This is okay. All right. I'm just my church talks back to me more, so I'm just used to I'm used to like some people come make make some noise. So, um, hey, there, there you go. There we go. Awesome. Encouragement right there. Um, okay, let's have everyone who has a Bible or a phone turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21. This is, you guys know Ephesians, um, six chapters, the first three chapters rich in theology, the last three chapters rich in practice. Uh, first three chapters are all about identity, last three chapters are all about behavior. I think the, the hinge, the pivot of this whole letter is this transition uh, where Paul gives this doxology, transitioning from chapter 3 into chapter 4, transitioning from the first half of the letter into the second half of the letter. He says this, Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want that doxology and kind of this prayer to be a um, a recurring theme and prayer for you as you make disciples. Uh, God is able to do far more abundantly than all you ask or think or imagine as a church. Do you believe that? Oh, yeah. yeah. God can do really great and really special things with the church of people that believe that. Sometimes you kind of have been going through the grind of following Jesus, the grind of church planting, and, you know, the grind of big prayers that you pray not getting answered or dreams that you had not, not coming true, and and you can forget that. But this is the God that we are talking about today. Him who is able to do, and Paul's stretching language here, he's kind of inventing new words to get this idea across, who's able to do far more abundantly 
than all that we ask or think or imagine. Um, according to the power, the Holy Spirit at work within us. Uh, you have what's most important as disciple makers. Uh, you have faith in this big God who can do far more than you ask or imagine. You have the Holy Spirit, his power at work within you. And great things can happen with a church that expects these great things from God. Um, this year, here, here's what we do. The, the mission, the way we state the mission of, of my church is depending on God to grow disciples deep and wide for God's glory. More than, more than seven words. Uh, depending on God to grow disciples deep and wide for God's glory. And so the way I think and our elders think is at the start of each new year in church life, is there maybe a particular focus area by which God wants to grow us as disciples deep and wide? Is there a way he wants to grow us deeper in him and widen our influence in the city? What might that look like? And what we're doing this year is we're wanting our whole church to grow deeper in awe and and have a wider experience of God's power at work through them. We're saying that there's a problem in our church, that we've, we've kind of lost our awe of God. And, and we, we want a deepening, a recovery and a deepening of awe and then a wider experience of God's power at work through us. And so then what I do as a pastor is I start thinking about how can I help my church grow in this way? We've, we've already have this discipleship framework and all that. Um, but year seven is a church. Like how can I help my church do this? And so this is, this is what we've done. I'm just sharing this as a tool because you guys could create similar kinds of tools for your church. We, we have a really fancy looking version of this. I, my, my, my assistant printed, printed this. I'm sorry I didn't bring my fancy looking version. If you want to see, so this, if you're interested in seeing like the better looking version, all this, if you go to our church's website, gardencitysv.com, Silicon Valley, gardencitysv.com, the awe and power plan, you can see that. And we also have an app that's there. But everyone in our church, we, we've asked everyone this year in our church, to use this tool, and I'm only showing you a tiny part of the plant. It looks stupid because it's not printed well; it doesn't look great. But um, we're we've we've created this tool, the Awe and Power Plan, and I have called everyone in our church to use it. Now I'm not in control over whether everyone will or not, but they hear me and all of our leaders talking about this every single week, and just a culture around it. So we're, we're hoping most people are using it. Um, look under vision, um, I, and I'm sharing all this because this is giving you some examples of how to continue to create a disciple-making culture in, in your church. It's going to grow people deep and wide. Um, we're asking everyone to devote 15 to 30 minutes. Now, think about that. I'm training my church through time, right? I'm trying... I, I, sometimes you'll meet people and they'll say, you, you have a friend like this in your life or something. And they're like, man, like I'm so out of shape and I don't understand it. And you say to them, well, it's because you never exercise. It's it's because you eat like crap. That's why, right? Um, sometimes you have that friend in your life who says, I feel so, I don't feel close to God. I just feel stuck. Uh, I'm, I'm lacking joy. I don't understand. And you say, well, it's because you're, you're not like, engaging with God. You're never filling your heart with scripture. You're not in prayer. Like, that's why. Um, and so I'm, I'm this year wanting to come at my church in disciple making with time. And I'm saying, I want my whole church to devote 15 to 30 minutes a day, five days a week, Sunday through Thursday, to train with this tool. And this tool that I've given our church is not a Bible reading plan. I don't like that phrase because I feel that that can feed into the Bay Area, just fill your head with more information about God. God is, is an idea. When God's not an idea, 
God is a, he's not an idea to be discussed. He's a person to relate with, to enjoy, to worship, to obey. And so um, the, the thought is that everyone will use this, whether sometimes they're going to use this tool alone, sometimes they're going to use this with a, with a growth partner, that's other language you use in a church for disciples. Um, sometimes they're going to use this with people they're in a life group with or whatever. And what they're going to do is, is it's going to create these three, we believe it's going to create these three important habits in our church. And let me just walk you through these habits uh, for, for a moment. Um, I want people to open up the text. So what, what, the, what, it, what, the re, what this reading plan does is people every Sunday morning, they read the text that I'm preaching that Sunday. Uh, so they've, they've read it before I've preached it. They've been soaking in it. Then on Monday, they read that exact same text again in Ephesians. So now they're kind of hearing it differently because they heard it unpacked on Sunday. Then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they're walking through the Psalms. Just I want to get my church in their heart more. Psalms, they're walking through that. And then I have Friday, Saturday off, not because it's like, don't read your Bible on Friday, Saturday. But I want, I want this to feel really doable to people. And I want people to see built-in rest. And I don't want it to, to feel like this overwhelming thing. So practice presence, number one. You can read this in detail later. I won't go through it all. Um, I'm trying to get my church to grow in being present to God, not just, oh, here's a text to read. Let me read it and like check this off my list and, and move on. Um, God is a person. And he wants to relate with you. God is always always present to us. But our, our, we're not always present to him. We're not always awake and alert to his presence. And I'm trying to get my fast-paced, very much in their head, Silicon Valley, engineer, I'm really busy people to slow down, to be still, to have 15, 30 minutes of their day devoted to just kind of entering into the presence of God. And to kind of enter in, to kind of get alert to his presence, and then to open up the scriptures and to read a text. And to ask some questions like, what is this text about? You see that question here, original context. Um, but then to really ask this question, what, I, what am I maybe in awe of right now instead of God? Um, I think awe is really important. All of us... All of us are in awe of something. If we're not in awe of God, we're standing in awe of someone or something else. And I want my church thinking about that. Man, maybe I'm just in awe of all these problems or in awe of my to-do list rather than God. And then I have them transition and I have them pick a, a word or a phrase or a verse from Scripture that day to just meditate on throughout the day and to have that be their main conversation piece with God. Then number two, pray big. This is a habit I want to build in my church. Again, we, we said this earlier when I'm talking about praying through the three R's. It's easy to just kind of default into prayer that's all request, and it's all kind of self-focused request. God, would you do this for me, do this for me, do this for me? I want to teach more kingdom prayer and praying big for our church. So every day, Sunday through Thursday of the week, we have a different prayer that our church is praying. And it gives me so much um, joy and confidence as a pastor to know that my church, the bulk of my church, is praying this. So you see what some of those sample prayers are. Um, I'll just read a couple. Like on Monday, we're just asking Jesus to use our church and our workplaces, that he'd use us to do good work, that blesses our city. Um, on Tuesday, everyone in our church is praying for one non-Christian friend in their life who they want to see Jesus save, and we're just begging God to, to do that. Um, Wednesday, we're praying for the Spirit to multiply the influence of our life groups. Wednesday is when 90% of our life groups meet. Thursday, I'm asking, we're asking the church to, to ask God to do something impossible. And, I'm, and that's going to be different things for different people, but something, kind of a prayer people maybe long ago quit praying or dream they quit dreaming because they're like, God can never do this. I'm trying to get our people to, to do that. And, and you see where that like gets into discipleship because to do that, like for me, the stuff I'm praying about 
like it really opens up my heart because it, it opens up these areas where I could get hurt again. Because man, what if God doesn't answer this prayer? Man, I'm gonna start feeling, dreaming this desire again. That was kind of like a dormant desire, and nothing ever happened. And so, so we're we're seeking God in this way, and so that's growing our culture of discipleship. It's us kind of going recognizing this is a way our church needs to grow this year, praying big. And then three, number three, discover design. Um, we're, we're talking here about kind of staying in communion with God as you work through this text and trying to get people to to be sensitive to the Spirit. Is the Spirit showing you just a little bit more of how you're uniquely wired, uniquely designed? Ephesians 2.10 says we're God's workmanship created for works um, that Christ wants us to walk in. Or, or there maybe this gets to a culture of encouragement. Are you maybe, you know hearing something from the spirit about some words of life you could speak to someone in our church about how they're how god's using them how they're wired how they're gifted um so you know again just a a tool for you to think about uh not saying use use this but uh that can be a really cool thing you could be in a discipleship relationship with three four people with your community group whatever and you could have your own plan that's getting you to read scripture and is like putting a couple key habits that you want to build, maybe with pray big, maybe there's like a series of big prayers you're praying each particular day and it brings unity to that discipleship group, uh, to that community group or, or to the church. Um, so our belief and hope as a church this year is that God will use this to do some some special things in the, in the life of our church. Um, okay, so I will stop with that there and we will turn to questions and Format for this, uh, David. Do they come? Do they ask questions where they are? They come to the mic. Okay, he'll bring a mic around. And please ask uh, anything, everything you want. If I can answer it, I'll answer it. If I can't, I, I won't. We're trying to get the mic to work. I think. There we go. There you go. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what's the difference between discipling non-Christians and evangelizing to them all the time? Um, I just don't, I don't really define those two words differently. I, so, um, I think what I would say is it's a more deliberate focused relationship over time that you, now I don't go to non-Christians and say, I'm going to start discipling you. You know, I, I, I don't do that. I, they, cause they'd be like, what, wait, what are you doing to me? Uh, what, what are you saying? They don't even know what that word means. I'm just their friend. They're, they're, these are people I love and care about. I have affectionate desire for them. They're my friends. I love them and I care about them. And I'm just very intentional about my relationship with them. So um, I've got, and it's recorded so I won't use the names and stuff, but like I've got a lot of non-Christian buddies who I spend a lot of time with, who I really love, who I've been discipling for years. None, I've never called it discipleship. None of them know like these words, but I've been working through this stuff. Right now, it's different the level at which I can do that with a non-Christian, obviously, right? Because I don't even know what's going on. But story, I've gotten deep into their story. I really know their story, and they feel known and loved by me. Idol, first love, I've really we've posted that idol a bunch, and I've been able to sit with them, and I've been able to say, dude, you like control is clearly the center of your life, you know. And how's that going for you? And what's you know, I'm able to talk able to talk about that. I'm able to talk about how Jesus is better, you know. Um, Identity, I'm able to tell them what could be theirs in Christ. I'm able to tell them about my identity. I'm able to talk about um, the freedom I know and know in Christ. So I'm able to get on the get at this, but in different ways. And but they most of, they don't know I'm doing it. 
you know, I'm just I'm just doing it, and I'm just their I'm just their friend. So, good question. When you're elder enough? Yeah, like old enough, like mature enough to make disciples? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. How do you know when you're mature enough in Christ to make disciples? I think different people have different answers to this. But I really think, I think in the American church, we err too much on the side of waiting. I think we err too much on the side of, I need to sort of go to discipleship graduate school and get get all this info and then I can make disciples. And I just don't see that in the New Testament. I see much more of a sense that um, this person has been saved. The Holy Spirit is in them. They're on a path of following Jesus. God can start using them right now. So in my church, I are on the side of taking risks. Um, I are more on the side of, like, even, like, there was a guy discipled. He'd only been a disciple. He'd only been a Christian a year, discipled by me for a year, sent him out to start leading a life group and make disciples of his own and all that. And the Lord really used that. And I think that's that's really good. So I think... Truly, you can be, begin making disciples the day that you're saved, um, and that we ought to be like unleashing people to do that. But you can still stay in discipleship relationships where you're getting more, more maturity. So I'd much more err on the side of man, go make disciples now. Don't don't wait. Good question. Um, I'm curious to find out like what is your playbook for the actual discipleship uh, meeting that you guys have, like in yeah. two hours. What do you find most effective, like, to read a chapter of a book beforehand, and then when right. you get in a group, um, what, ha- what is, like, what actually happens within those two hours that you find most effective yeah. with the group? Who leads, who follows? Who right, right. Good. Yeah, well, I mean, it's pretty good question. It's pretty fluid. Um, it's all connect, train, pray. It's all those three. But it's fluid, and it can look different every time. So... Let's say I'm going to give around two hours a week to, to, to doing this with guys. Like, that's what I'm doing with this life group I just started. Um, for me, I'm doing it right now. Just these guys. It's over at my house. It's in my backyard. It's at 730. Um, who here likes wine? Only a couple of you. How many? Oh, man. God, try it. Um, so, <laughs> so. Uh, you know, for like, I got a lot, a lot of people that are just kind of like wine drinkers that are into wine. And so like, we have a bottle of wine open and we're sipping on some wine and we're just, we're just connecting. And it might, one given week, again, it might be one guy, a big focus on one guy's story. But when, let's say, Scott is telling a story, like guys are getting discipled through that. Because Scott is talking about this crazy thing he just went through in his marriage. And, and this other guy in his marriage is like, it's making his mind kind of go, right? Um, so it's going to look like that, and train, pray. Other weeks might be heavier on train, like we're in. So often it's going to be a text of scripture. What I, with This year with these guys, I'm, go, I'm following this on power plan, and therefore when I'm preaching. So two weeks ago, it was just Acts 19, which was setting up the Ephesians series. We spent time connecting, uh, talking about some stuff going on in our lives. Then we spent probably 45 minutes reading through Acts chapter 19, and every guy was giving his thoughts and his insights on it. And I don't allow people to give only heady textual insights, as important as those are. I, I'm always asking them, like, but how is this connecting to, like, your heart, to our church, to your workplace, to your marriage? You know, what's God teach? What's God saying to you, and what are you going to do about it kind of a question. Um, and then some time of prayer, just praying for, for one another. And I try to have that look different, because um, I don't want to just get into every week, hey, what's one way we can pray for each other? Uh, that's good. But sometimes you want to mix it up. Sometimes it's like, hey, let's pray that God's kingdom would come in Silicon Valley. We're praying that. Um, or, hey, let's all just pray for this guy and, like, what's going on with him. So it's fluid and it looks different. Um, I lead, but I also hand off leadership to other guys. 
So um, there's other guys where um, I'll tell them, hey, you're leading this week. Start thinking and praying about what that's going to look like for you. And then I want them to have the reins to do it in their way because they're going to do it differently than I will, and, and that'll be good. So, yeah, good question. I have a text message question. Yeah. Um, what would you, it kind of relates to the question someone asked earlier, but what would you say to someone who wants to be in a discipleship relationship with someone but doesn't feel confident in their ability to connect with others in a meaningful way, uh, shyness, lack of social skills, intimidated by others, etc.? Yeah. Well, if that person wants it, then that's good. So, like, if I'm hearing that question right, this person wants to be in a discipleship relationship. Okay, this is a person who wants to be in a discipleship relationship, but they feel shy, lack of social skill. Um, take a risk. Got to, got to do it. You got to over, got to overcome that. You're never, you're not going to get too far if you stay behind the the, the shyness um, and the lack of social skill. Jesus' kingdom is full of very different people, different personalities, extroverts, introverts, shy people, not shy people. So I'd say take a risk and jump in and do it. And if you're the leader of like a discipleship group, you want to make sure everyone feels safe and okay. You want to make sure your group doesn't take on a personality. Like I have to make, I don't ever want a group to take on my personality. You know, my personality, like strong and let's go, extroverted, all that. Uh, I want people in my group to feel like they can just be themselves. They don't have to be, be like me. So the leader needs to work hard to make sure someone who's um, really shy or Maybe lack some social skills or man, small talk is really hard for them. Make sure they feel safe. How do you ride the line between building a culture of grace, really having real connections with people, this true relationship that's based on friendship, and let's move it onward within a matter of months? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's tricky. You you probably need you know the time the timeline to do that well. The timeline needs to probably be longer than a matter of months. You know, it needs to probably be longer. Again, I had three to twelve in there. It probably needs to be more like, hey, over the course of the next two years, over the course of the next year, these are some hopes I have. You know, and giving a theology of gospel, a theology of grace that it transforms and it, and it moves us along. So you lay out that theology. Grace makes us safe, it makes us righteous with God, it makes us good, uh, and it transforms us, it produces fruit, it, it moves us along. Um, and so as we, as a group of disciples, come to, come alive to God's grace more and more, it's going to change us, it's going to transform us, it's going to progress us, it's going to it's going to lead to multiplication. You know, that's, that's what, when grace really works itself out, that's what happens. Laying those expectations out up front. So my question is about the Yeah. Um, a discipleship group. Yeah. At the same time, it sounds like you graduate somebody to be a leader. Right. And how does that person, the disciple, after they leave that discipleship, yes. yeah. have a structure to follow up on those? Yeah. 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 Great, great question. Yeah, there's a variety of ways to do that. So, um, it all depends on the person and their maturity level and what they want and where they're at. So, yeah, sometimes you could raise up a leader, send them out, and it's not like, peace out, like I'll never see you again. <laughs> It all depends, it all depends on what they want. Like, in our structure, at our church, all of our life group leaders have life group coaches, and then like our associate pastor who's over all that. And so there's a built-in structure of like regular meetings we're doing. So, like, I'm in a cohort with six other life group leaders, and we meet regularly, and I care for that cohort of leaders. So there's a structure of care and accountability there. I've sent out guys to lead groups, guys to disciple. And I, I always tell people this. I always tell people, I want you to know I'm I'm always, and some of this is maybe because of the amount of stuff I have going on as a pastor, but I just tell people as I graduate them, know that I'm always here for you. 
Know that you can always come to me. You can always talk to me. I'll always pick up your phone call. Like You can always do that. But also know that now that I've sent you out and done this, my focus goes here. And so the relationship's going to feel different. And I need you to be the one who's proactive and kind of coming to me. And that, that's kind of worked for me. And some of that's just because I'm a pastor and all the folks I'm kind of with. And that's worked well. And guys know they can just call me anytime and hang out with me anytime. But also sometimes it can go, you know, I've seen, I've seen it be hard on guys sometimes where we were closer before because they had, they were with me for a year or two. And I also kind of have the pastor of the church thing going on where like, man, I was hanging out with you all the time and I feel like I just don't see you anymore. I talk about that kind of thing up front and that helps a little bit. Um, I talk about that up front in the group that again, we are not here to all be best friends for 25 years. Um, though there are great friendships here and friendships that will deepen that will last that long. But we, we are here to grow in relationship, make disciples, and be part of a movement. And so, you know, if you're multiplied out, like, it will feel different. So at least having people, at least they've heard that on the front end a little bit, that helps. It doesn't, doesn't fix it all, but it, it helps a little bit. It's messy. Just kind of a follow-up question to that. Someone texted is, um, do you have someone mentoring or discipling you separately as your disciples? Yeah, what I have, I think every pastor needs to be pastored. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm kind of a leader in every area of my life, right? And this is something like, as you listen to this, think about this, ways you can care for your pastors, your elders. Every area of my life, I'm a leader. Like my family, my marriage, my church, my life group, other organizations I, I work in and I do stuff in. And so I realized, man, I really need, you know, some people that'll pastor me, that'll care for my soul. Um, so that comes for me from a variety of spots. Um, tell you about about some of them uh one of the main ones is a guy named bill wellens he runs a church planting organization called fellowship associates in little rock arkansas and he's just this mentor coach father figure to me uh we first met when i was first playing the church uh seven eight years ago and he and i do a once a month phone call where it's set it's on the calendar we talk on the phone for about 45 minutes once a month and he just loves me. It's, it's awesome. I end a lot of these phone calls just crying and stuff. He just loves me. He, he je- checks in on my heart, checks in on my marriage and family, checks in on the church. And every time, there's always like two to three things I write down. Um, and, I, and it's just gold. And like I just, man, I really, it really powers me through the next month or so until I talk to him again. Um, a, a good buddy, uh, mentor, also friend, mentor of mine, uh, who was my pastor in Santa Barbara when I was in college. He and I talk regularly, constantly. Um, he loves me. He cares for me. Um, and then the guy who was my boss and pastor when I was working up the peninsula, uh, my old church, um, he's also uh, a great mentor and friend. So I kind of have these three, these three go-to guys that are, that are really helpful. And then, and then my elders too, um, just going to the elders in my church and tell, I've, I've told the elders this and they're, they're learning, they're finding their way. It's not all perfect, but I've told the elders like, guys, in many ways, your job is to care for me because, you know, I'm, I'm caring for the church and like, I, I want this to be a safe place where you can care for me and um, be there for me and encourage me. So I, I have that from our, our elders, which is, which is good. So. Just a follow up question. How yeah. much of that is your desire to be mentored versus how much of it is them? It's it, a lot of it's me. A lot of it's me um, desiring that and saying, "Hey, I want this, and I want to want to pursue this." Yeah. I have two questions. Yeah. So, first question, um, first an observation: that's if we focus on truth or love. Yeah. And I think that in our sermons, in our teaching, we 
focus on truth. Yeah. And in relationships, we focus more on love. Right. But there's not a lot of truth that happens in relationships. Yeah. So the question is, how do you bridge the gap between just hanging out time and having potential sharing? Yeah, it's good. I think it's it's hard to do. You just have, you have to forge a culture where it becomes normal. You, you have to be a leader where you create a culture with that group of five guys or with that one-on-one relationship where that becomes how you operate. And it it's probably awkward at first when you first start it if that's been more the culture where it's just like love and hangout time and not truth. But you just lay it out. So like when I started this life group, I laid that out. I laid this is how we're going to roll. This is what we're going to do. And it included in that first meeting calling a guy out on the rest of the guys on something. It included like, hey, what you just said, I don't think that's true. You know, so the guy was saying, the guy, he was just trying to like laugh off something. And I said, I said, I don't think that's true. I think actually that really hurt you. Like, did that hurt you? Pretty hard. And then like it brought the group to a whole new level. Cause then he just started going, yeah, it actually really did. And like started, so it's, it's little moments like that that I think start, start doing that. Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy to do. You just have to start doing it. Um, and the other question is, um, a lot of the way our church functions in community is through our community groups, and we have groups of like eight to fifteen people. Right. We kind of cover in these groups. Yeah. Do you have ideas of how discipleship can work in that context? Yeah, I mean, so I don't know fully how you guys are structured and, and kind of the vision and the model, but in a context like that, like so, our church. We only had the first four years, five years, our groups were all sermon-based, and they were all mixed gender on purpose. Um, we wanted to really instill DNA of family and unity in our church. So the unity was that it was all based on the te- what they were studying the group was always what the sermon was studying. Um, and then mixed gender, so we really had family. We've now felt at a level where it's the, the best thing to do is for us to expand, and we also have groups that are guys only, gals only, all that. But like, let's say it's mixed gender. Let's say you're in a group of 15 people, guys, gals. You can have like cohorts sort of within that. You can have these four guys that are in a tighter discipleship relationship, three, three gals that are. You can do that, and your, your weekly life group or community group meeting could look like spending some time just, that, just in those groups for a while. Um, you could have a rotation schedule where, you know, first week of the month, um, you know, it's the whole group together, second and fourth, second and third weeks, it's like the smaller cohort discipleship relationships and meet different ways to, different ways to get at it. Okay, I have another question, um, from text message. Discipling sounds very time consuming. What if I don't have time? That's great. Great question. Um, a lot of way, a lot of ways to answer that. So, a couple, couple ways to answer, I'm gonna to try to answer this in like, Black and white ways, nice ways, mean ways. Um, if you don't, if you don't have time for discipleship, like you don't have time to be a Christian. So I'd say that's like, like that's that's one thing I'd say. Like if you don't have time to make disciples, you don't have time to follow Jesus. You're like you're not a Christian because the call of Jesus is to follow Him, bring others to Him. Uh, the call of Jesus is relational. The call of Jesus is to walk in close relationship with him and with the church. The church has one mission, make disciples. So you don't have time for church. You don't have time for Jesus. So that's one way to say it. Uh, another way to say it is, uh, you know, the person asking that could just be intimidated by this because this is a lot, you know, throwing, throwing a ton at you. And what I'm throwing out here is a method, a model, right? You, you could have a hundred different guys here today teaching a, dis- a seminar on disciple making. 
you know, and it's all going to be a bit different. Hopefully it all is getting at truth and love's coming through relationship and you're doing that. Um, I, I think you have to, like for me, I want disciple making to be, for everyone in our church, I want it to be something people want to do. You know, it should never feel like a burden. It should never feel like a should. Uh, I want disciple making to be, this is awesome. I get to be a part of this. I get to be in relationship with a bunch of people. I get to be an influencer uh, that makes an eternal dent in this world for God's glory. Um, so I think you have to find for you what what it looks like for you that is life-giving and true to your personality and true to God's call on your life. So like I could never, there's some people that would teach discipleship in very rigid ways, um, follow this certain set curriculum, it's got to look like this, or in certain, you've heard me kind of rail against it, certain only intellectual ways. I'd hate that. That would like, that would never, that would never work for me. But if you want to get me hanging with a group of men, and we're going to eat some food together, we're going to drink some wine together, I'm going to get into their life, I'm going to see them in their homes and their marriages, I'm going to visit them in their workplace. I visit all my guys at their workplace a lot, and I do that with all people in my church all the time. Um, it's got a sense of adventure to it. Um, I get to just love them. I get to pray for them. I get to see Jesus change their life. I think it's really exciting. So um, if someone doesn't have time for it, you know, just start small. Start with one relationship. You know, start start with one other person. Start with two people. Um, don't leave this room today until maybe you've identified just one other person here where you can say, hey, I want to start trying to put into practice some of what we talked about today. Could you and I start meeting together um, once a week or once every other week for breakfast and start kind of figuring out what this looks like for our lives. You know, and maybe maybe by the end of 2018, we've, like, got a clearer picture of what's happening here and what God's doing with us. So you, can, you can start small. Hi, Justin. Hi. Yeah. Um, we haven't ever really discussed this that much at our church, so yeah. this is groundbreaking and cool. just so insightful, so much here. Um, I I have two questions. Um, first is, do you feel like discipleship works best if you have kind of one discipler, discipling people who are a little bit junior, mm-hmm. not necessarily in age? And then maybe faith. Yeah. Or do you think a peer group works as well? Or, you know, like, yeah. what, do, you, do you think having that elder or statesman kind of person is an important factor to yeah. life? Yeah, very, very good question. Um, very good question. I think both models work really well and both are important. And I think it's good to create a church culture where both kind of happen. So, like, when we first started our church, this model was more the first thing you're talking about, more like the the more mature disciple guy discipling other people. And I think that was important when we first started our church because, like I said, the way our church started, like, just three people, none of us knew each other. Uh, and we were just learning each other's stories. None of us knew each other. So it was smarter to, like, start with this and kind of go, okay, we like, we're starting with about five leaders. Let's have those five leaders start practicing this. Uh, we got these 12 men in this group and the ladies my wife was with. Let's, like, start having them do this in the church. And then as our church has grown and matured, we've moved more towards having those lines be a little more blurry, you know. Now, we do still sometimes have, like, the clear, this person's, like, the disciple or thing. Always, hopefully, with humility that they've got a lot to learn. 
from the people they're discipling too. Um, but I also like having those lines be kind of a bit blurry. So like with this group that I'm leading, it is clear that I'm the leader, uh, but I have clearly said to all these guys what I just told you. Listen, guys, I'm a leader in all of my life. I'm a leader here, but I often don't want to be the leader here. I want, I want us all to lead one another. Um, now, what that whole group of eight, nine guys doesn't know is there's uh, two guys in particular in my mind. I'm like, it's really going to be especially through those other two guys. You know, I, all these guys will speak, but there's going to be two other guys that I'm going to lean most heavily on. I'm going to say, hey, this week you're leading. This week I need you to do this. Um, or there's this stuff going on with this dude's life. I want you to be the one to dive deeper into that, not me. So so my answer is kind of both. I think I, I think at different stages in the life of the church, different stages in where you're at with the Lord, different models can, can work. Cool. Um, my second question is I was really intrigued by what you said about sin, wounds, and weaknesses. Yes. And that if you kind of mix those things and call out uh, something that you think is a sin but it's actually a, a result of a wound, it's right. really harmful and hurtful yeah. and destructive. Could you give like, more to that? Could you flesh that yeah. out a little or give yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so a big thing with this is um, knowing the person's story and time, right? Because with, with knowing their story and with time, you can more accurately diagnose and see what's going on. If we're too quick, we're going to just, like, put everything under this category of sin, generally. And I don't think that's helpful. So an example might be you're discipling someone, and this is the first thing that pops in my head. Uh, maybe they've got a lot of depression going on. Um, depression's complex, a lot of stuff going on with it, right? Sometimes immaturely, someone might say, hey, so you just need to like repent of that. You just need to trust God. You just need God's bigger. Just repent, just rejoice in the Lord. Now, there are some people that need to hear that. And that is can be a component of parts of depression with people, right? But what about when you dive deeper into their story and you learn all this other stuff that happened to them? And some biochemical stuff going on too. Like, Sometimes you got to go, hey, maybe that depression wasn't as clearly, I thought that was kind of all sin. Actually, it's a lot of wound. Man, and that's a lot of weakness, too, going with the person. And so you're more nuanced with that. Um, I, I, I've seen people who've had wounds in their life, and they've been told, hey, just get over it, um, or just, just quit dwelling on it, or, man, that was probably your fault, and that just causes causes damage. So I think it's just a matter of wisdom with people to like really listen and to see what's going on. And I think the Holy Spirit gives us that discernment. So like I try to do that when I preach. I try to, I mean, not necessarily every sermon, but I try to make those kind of distinguishments um, too. Because um, I don't know, mo- mo- all of us in this room ha- have sin wounds and, and weaknesses. And I think probably all of us in this room have had people in our life kind of miss what was what was what. And I want people in my church to feel like, man, it's okay to be weak. It's okay to have limits. Like, it's, it's okay. And it's, it's okay to be wounded. And, to, and uh, you know, we don't want to wallow in our wounds. We want to pursue healing and growth, you know. Um, and then sin, be honest about your sin and let's own it and let's repent of it and let's grow. Yeah. Um, so your church, um, you started this disciple-making initiative in your church, yeah. and you were hoping to initiate this culture of disciple-making, right? Yeah. Was there a point, a turning point, where you, where you felt, oh, I, 
feel like my congregation or I feel like our members, you feel like we've, we've arrived in that culture. Yeah. Was there a moment, or how did, and how did you get there? Yeah, uh, I'd, say, I'd say we got a lot better. I'd say it started with me realizing this mistake of mine of assuming everyone knew how to do this. Um, the way I come at life is very instinctual. And I was kind of thinking, oh, most people know how to do this and are doing it. I'm like, that's not how a lot of my church is coming at it. So I think we made a lot of progress by me identifying that mistake, creating this, training a bunch of leaders in this, uh, doing seminars like this in my church on this. And I think we've, we've grown a lot. But I think as our church has grown, like I think it's time that I do another thing just like this in my church. You know, I'm sitting here going like, I gotta do this in my church again. Um, because, you know, we've grown a lot kind of in size in that phase and a lot of new people. And I don't know how your church is, but we constantly have new people moving in and people moving out steadily. And I think it's a good, would be time for like a really good reset on this. I mean, people are hearing a lot of this from the pulpit from me a lot and people are being discipled by me and I'm pushing this into leaders, but it, it, there probably needs to be a reset time. So, so I, I wouldn't say we ever, we got a lot. I'd say we were here. We got a lot better. And probably now, like, man, I gotta, I gotta make sure we, we're back to that and kind of reset, reset that. So I don't know that I ever like, oh, we arrived, like, it's all happening, but we made a lot of progress, uh, and we still need to make more. Got a question here from text. Um, you've spoken a lot of discipleship in a group setting. Um, yeah. When you're doing these, in this discipleship in this group setting, do you also meet with people in that group, like one on one, and if so, yeah. how often are they? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Just I let wisdom guide that. So I, I'm a big fan, and this is just me speaking. I'm a big fan of group discipleship because I think more, can, I, I think Jesus modeled that, and I think more can kind of happen with that. So Jesus modeled twelve, but then he was really close to the three, right? Um, and I think that's often how how it can go. You need to know your relational capacity, right? You need to know like how much relational energy you have. So back to that question, like, what if I don't have time for discipleship? That question could just be coming from the place of, like, I don't have tons of relational energy. I'm really introverted, or I don't have a lot of energy for that. I've got a lot of relational energy. Like, I, I have time for tons of relationships, and I want to be in a lot of relationships. And so that works for me. My wife's capacity for that is different than mine, right? And so so you need to know that. So um, with, with one-on-one, that is a component of group discipleship for me. I've got guys that will like, hey, would you meet with me one-on-one? Would you disciple me one-on-one? What I say Instead is, hey, I want you to be in this group with me because you're going to gain more from that. You're going to learn not just from me, but from the whole group, and the whole group is going to learn from you. But let's get time together. You know, you and me, yeah, let's go. Let's get some. Let's get coffee. Let's talk. Or I'll meet you at your workplace, and we'll talk. We'll hang out. So, I do the one-on-ones as part of a group, um, and I feel like that's the more strategic use of my time for the kingdom. Another question um, for a church like ours who doesn't really have discipleship really in their DNA yet. How do you implement a program? Is it more top-down where the church says, I'm, we're going to roll out a discipleship program, here's how you sign up? Or is it, do you need a very organic and a free-for-all and expect other members to just grab five people and start? And there's yeah. some, like, logistical, how does Yeah, that yeah, that's, good. that's a good question. I mean, it depends on how the Lord leads you guys in your culture, but... In wanting to make this a bigger part of your culture, a part of your DNA, I'd recommend starting with something top-down, but that people really want to own. So something top-down that comes from the elders and the staff of this year, this is how we want to grow in disciples, and I don't know what that might look like. Uh, we want to see everyone at the church have two to three discipleship relationships that they're growing with. Um, 
and you've kind of taught the community group leaders in, in some ways to go about it. But then you kind of, you know, it's up to the church members to really make that happen. It's being led through the elders, the staff, or the community group leaders. You're talking about it on Sundays. You've got some structure to support it. Um, and you're constantly calling people to do it, but then it's up to them to kind of do it. Um, I think to bring culture change, there's got to be like a top-down unity like we want to, not force, but summoning people to it. It's like um, it's like that the on power plan we're having our church do it this year. We really top-down are trying to bring that into a church. We want to do it, but we can't force people to, you know, do it or anything. Um, but but it's everywhere in our culture. It's anywhere you go on our website, and emails, and Sundays, and life groups, and everything. So you can't escape it. How do you handle having people of different maturity levels in the believers in the same group? Yeah. I feel like the, somebody who doesn't have very much to eat at some point, they're, they're not going to get it, and you just got to move on. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's one of the greatest gifts. So... You, you already have that probably in any of your community groups. How do you handle that in a community group? How do you handle that in a church? That's what the church is. That's what family is. How do I handle that? How do I handle that in my family? Because my seven-year-old is really different than my 11-year-old. Um, I handle it by trying to be a good dad, you know, and trying to, to love. So I think it's if you have a community group or a discipleship group where everyone's at similar maturity levels, I, my, people would have different answers to this. I'd say that's a problem. I'd say that's not healthy uh, because – you need, I think people should always be with people of different maturity levels because that's the church. Uh, how did Jesus do that? Twelve disciples, all pretty different maturity levels, different kind of things going on. Um, how do I preach every Sunday? I mean, that's the challenge of preaching every Sunday. How do I preach on Sunday to someone who's been walking with Jesus for 50 years and is really mature? Someone who claims to be walking with Jesus for 50 years but is not mature at all. Uh, the, the non-believers that are sitting there, the brand new Christians, the different personality types, the, the person addicted to this, the person addicted to that. It's it's a real challenge, but it's the church and the spirits there. So, I think if you're if you've got a group of guys you're discipling um, and six and a bunch of different maturity levels, um, see it as opportunity rather than challenge. I'd say see it as God's using this and that person's same question they keep asking, or that lack of belief, or that confusion there. That's an opportunity for the whole group to really to really grow. Now, I think different if you have someone who's disrupting the group. That's different. And most of the time that comes from a Christian who's really annoying. Um, diff- different if there's someone that's trying to, like, hinder it. That's different. Like, that's, like, then I deal with that. But if someone is, like, trying to really be disruptive or they're trying to, like, get us off of the mission and where this is going, pursuing Christ, I deal with that, you know. Um, yeah. Good question. Good question. Let's do uh, a few more questions. Yeah, yeah. So some of the books that were mentioned in that sheet, um, The Walk by Stephen Smallman, highly recommend. Uh, Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman, Tim Keller, Prodigal God. Um, my book, The Big Story, we use a lot in our church. Um, the Gospel by Ray Ortland. There's many others, but those are the main ones um, we've used. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I kind of follow that. I don't explicitly mention it, but 
under um, under number five, honesty and self awareness. That's where I would put that under. Like I, knowing who you are, knowing how you're uniquely wired, knowing what your spiritual gifts are. I, I put that under that bigger umbrella. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Yep, yep, I've done that before where I've said, hey, and this kind of goes to her question earlier, like how soon can someone disciple? Where I've just said, I, where I don't mean I don't want you out there influencing people, but you're not ready to lead your own group yet. So I, I've, I've certainly said that to people. Um, and it's just a matter of having wisdom and discernment where I've said, hey, you need to spend maybe another year in my group or someone else's group or something like that. You're not, not ready for that yet. You well, it's again. I, I always go back to culture. I go back to create. I, I tend to think in culture, not policy. Create a culture, and then set clear expectations. So you, you set clear expectations of a group, and you set it in the beginning because that's harder. It's harder to readjust later. So like when I started this this group with my guys a couple weeks ago, I just said, "Hey, here here is what I expect of you." If you're in this group. Now, they had already seen this in the previous emails and previous one-on-one conversations while this group was starting to form. But then I said it in person with all of us together, nine, ten of us together. Here's what I expect in terms of commitment. This is one of the C's I talked about. I expect your commitment. I expect you to be here. I expect this meeting to be on your calendar. I expect if you're not going to, sh- if you can't show up because you had you know, business travel or whatever, that you tell not just me, but you tell the whole group because that way you're accountable to the whole group, not just I told Justin. Um, and that you tell people in advance, not 20 minutes before the meeting, oh, something came up, I can't come tonight. So I set that, I set that culture. Um, I, I say, hey, I expect honesty in this group. And it's going to take time for us to all get there and to trust one another one another with that, but I expect us to be honest and talk about it. And so I'm saying, I'm giving people clear expectations on day one, on the front end, uh, of, of what I'm going to hold. And then I say, and I'm going to hold us, and I expect all of us to hold one another accountable to it. So if we're not, if we're not being committed, if we're not sharing honestly, we're going to hold one another accountable to it. So that's, starting with clear expectations. What does that mean, hold them Well, yeah, no, we definitely don't spank. <laughs> That'd be super, super weird. Um, <laughs> so, uh, change. So, accountable to change. I don't think I said anything to them about change. I meant just talk to them about honesty and truth, and we're going to pursue Jesus together. So, if I'm three months into a group with a guy, and if I, if, if I and some other guys are seeing, 
hey, this guy's not really serious about growing in the Lord. He doesn't want it. I think that would just mean a conversation. I think it would mean, hey, you said you wanted this. You said you wanted to pursue the Lord with a group of men. You said you wanted to be on this mission. Uh, your actions aren't, aren't, aren't matching that. What's up? Uh, so I think it would look like that. It would look like, you know that I'm going to get in your face, or the, or the whole group's going to get in your face, and ask you some questions, and say what, what what's going on with that, and then see what they say, and then depending on what they say, that can go in a bunch of different directions, you know. So, um, how do you do discipleship with children? Is there anything different about that? Yeah. Or special? And how do you bridge them? Yes, yes. Okay, so how do you do it with kids? Yeah, I think there's a lot different. I mean, there's a lot similar, a lot different. The kids are are the church. They're not the future of the church. So the kids in this church are part of Indelible Grace Church. They're not the future. They're here in it now. Um, so the brain, yes, the brain. I worked at a Presbyterian church for a while. But uh, the, the brain, though, of an 11-year-old or a 15-year-old, or the emotional world is going to be different, right? So... When you're getting it, I think you can do, like all the training components on here, you can, you can scale it down. So all the training components here, I'm doing this with my sons. I'm doing this with my 11, 9, and 7-year-old, but the language is different. You know, I've, I've never talked to any of my boys about, do you have an approval idol? Do you have a control idol or all that? <laughs> I've, I mean, I've never done that. But I, I know them well, and I already know what they can tend to worship instead of God. I know that my oldest son, control, is his thing. I know that my middle son, approval, is his thing. Right? So, like, I know that. So, so I think you can do all of this, but it's scaled down, and the language is different, and, and you come at it differently. And to, to the other question, how do you make kids feel like they're part of the entire church? I, every church has to figure that out differently. I mean, we, we're still figuring that out. I mean, what we, some of what we do is, is it the, the first and third week of each month, the kids are in, in with us for the whole first part of the worship service for all the singing. Then they go to kids ministry during, during the sermon. Um, that helps. Whenever we're celebrating baptisms, uh, the kid, like we did last week, all the kids are there for that, to see that, to celebrate that, to, to get in on that. Um, our kids ministry director and the leaders that work under her um, work hard to have a kids ministry that is discipling the kids, not not just you know Sunday school or entertainment, but actually discipling them and having it have like a community group feel in the classroom. Um, and then I think just teaching them and talking to them about how important they are to the church, how they are the how they are the church. Um, but I don't know that we have it figured out. Sure. Yeah, yes. Carly and I think it's six, seven, or eight. I personally think it's eight. Okay. Great. So six, seven, or eight. That's a lot of numbers. Okay. <laughs> why, why, why do you think it's six? Why do you think it's seven? Why do you think it's eight? Yeah. Um, you know, you're really 
way right. that you hear the truth and yeah. have a vision if you go for it sort of a thing. Yeah. You like people in groups. Yeah. Your yeah. struggle is to go. Right. Right, right, right. What is it? Yeah, I'm an eight with a seven wing. Oh. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, a, hel- a healthy eight. So with the, with the Enneagram, it's, that's also where it's helpful. It's going to give you a scale of how healthy or unhealthy, how resourceful or non-resourceful you are in your number, whether you use that in a healthy way or a non-healthy way. So um, by the grace of God, a healthy eight with a seven wing. That'll make sense to you if you ever take the test. So, yeah. Well, before we end, um, two things. One is if you could just give us a, maybe a brief overview of your books. So yeah. Sure. Yeah. Brief overview of the book. Uh, back there, let's see. I've written five books. Four of the five that I've written are there. Um, I didn't have a lot of every book. Uh, what I have the most of there is "Date Your Wife." I wrote that book because I was mad. Uh, I I was mad about the condition of men in marriages. I looked around at most marriages I saw, and I live in church world, and they were just so mediocre. They they were not full. Of the, I, I saw very few marriages where if you're a person on the street, you saw that marriage, you go, oh, I want to get married. Like what they have seems really healthy, really good, really great. I saw so few of those. And so that's why I wrote that book. Um, it's my vision for manhood. It's my vision for marriage. It's actually kind of a book on the gospel disguised as a book on manhood and marriage. It's uh, men and women read the book, and uh, it's more directed at men, but women have read the book and really enjoyed it. My wife wrote in the book, too. She wrote the afterword. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's my passion for men and marriage in the book. Um, short, small, people love it, people get it. Um, a lot of non-Christians have really read that book and been affected by it. The book, The Big Story, came out of the first seven sermons I preached at our church when we launched our church. I wanted to give my church a framework for the story of the Bible and how to use the story of the Bible to engage non-believers and engage their workplace, uh, showing that the biblical story is the only story that is big enough to make sense out of the beauty and the brokenness in our world. Uh, there's a study guide back there on the Gospel of John that I wrote for Crossway, so that's a study guide. Uh, and then there's a book called Why Cities Matter that my friend Stephen um, and I wrote together about the importance of reaching cities with the gospel. Tim Keller wrote the foreword to that one. And um, it's kind of a, a, a sociology and a theology of cities and reaching cities with the gospel. One of the chapters, I think chapter four in there, profiles a section of the Bay Area and kind of how to contextualize the gospel to the Bay Area. It's a chapter that we've had everyone in our church read. Um, and then lastly, um, how can IGC, how can we pray for your, your you know, you, for your church? Mm. What do you guys have going on down there in you know, your life? Yeah, let's see. I, I think, I'd say the number one way you could pray is what I was talking about with awe. Pray that our, pray that me, pray that our church would just grow in deeper awe of God. That's what we're praying hard for and pursuing this year, that God would give us a far greater awe of who he is. Uh, I just want to kind of see that spread through, spread through our people, spread through, spread through our church. So, yeah, I love my church, love what we do. We meet Sundays in the afternoons, um, 4 p.m. Uh, we just moved to a new space a couple months ago, a bigger space, so we could remain at one service. And I'm really excited about what God's doing with us. So yeah, when you think of it, pray for us. And uh, if you want to stay in touch kind of from afar, I'm on I'm on Facebook, Justin Buzzard, Twitter, Justin Buzzard. And help me decide this, man. Everyone in my life is telling me I have to get on Instagram. Should I get on, like, do you, is Instagram valuable? Is it helpful? Everyone, yeah? Like, no. Okay. Literally in the last week, like eight friends have said you have to do it. And so I'm, okay. Right. So that didn't help me at all. That was like mixed opinion, but thank you.
Well, we're, we're so thankful that you're here. We, I feel like I've learned so much from a, drink, uh, from a fire hydrant uh, yeah. for the last couple hours. And, um, could we give him a hand just to say Yeah, absolutely. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Living God, we believe this of you. We believe that you are able to do Far more than we could think of right now, ask you for right now, imagine right now. I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Indelible Grace Church. First, what a joy to meet them. Uh, I didn't know. I had not yet met, uh, other than one or two people, these brothers and sisters of mine. We're family. We're, we're part of your church. And Lord, we're the church here in the Bay Area, and we love the Bay Area. We love this place. It's a beautiful place. It's also such a difficult place to follow you and to make disciples. And so we need you. We need your help. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come afresh upon the believers here at Indelible Grace, that you would guide them, that you would empower them, that you would provide for them in making disciples. Would you be with their elders, their pastors, their leaders as they debrief and think more about what does this mean in their their context? I pray that today would um, perhaps just be a catalyst or a momentum builder as your spirits at work in this church to make disciples. Uh, I pray that uh, if and when I get to see them again, uh, I'm just hearing stories of what what you've been doing, how you've been making disciples. Um, I pray for the person in this room right now who maybe feels overwhelmed by discipleship. St- start, start taking that away right now, Lord. Comfort them. I pray for the person in the room who feels anxious. Would you calm their anxiety? I pray for the the, the people in this room just feel hungry, excited, and inspired. Would you, would you feed and fuel, pour gasoline on that fire? And um, pray that everyone here would leave just in some way encouraged about your love for them and about your love for the Bay Area and about your commitment to disciple-making. Uh, we pray that you would... I pray that you would use this church uh, in profound ways to advance your gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.